diversity, culture, humanity. Welcome to Mark Talk. What's up, guys? Welcome to another Mark Talk. Okay, today we have Dr. Kirk Honda as our guest. I discovered him recently on uh, YouTube, actually. He has, a, he has a podcast called Psychology in Seattle. As you guessed, he's a psychologist and therapist, specifically couples therapist. So I was really interested to talk to him. Let's get right to it. Thank you for coming. Um, I've been a fan. I actually discovered your... Uh, your channel and podcast recently i've been a fan since so uh, it's a pleasure to have you i'm a fan of your channel now you have some really funny interesting videos that's thank you thank you so much how is the situation now in uh in the u.s post elections is it i, I hope it's not too tense right now uh, with everything changing well i don't know i don't feel tense i feel <laughs> quite good and optimistic for the future okay yeah yeah good <laughs> perfect how does canada feel about it canada i mean I can speak for my part. I mean, it looks like yeah. uh, there's the energy of unity, which I think is uh, what I'm rooting for. But uh, our prime minister looks like he's uh, quite happy with the situation. So, <laughs> and so am I. I'm not gonna lie. You know. So okay, as you know, um, uh, my everyone on the channel loves culture, and they also love mental health. So that's one of the reasons why I reached out to you. And it looks like we have a lot of questions to go through. We'll we'll do our best, but you know, within within the span of an hour. So um, we'll get to it actually right away. One question I had from a, a friend was concerning politics is how do we detach from politics, especially when everyone's at home? Yeah, it's a problem for, I think, a lot of us that there is such access to so many different streams of news. And some of it is designed to get us to click on it. And the way you get it to get us to click on it is to provoke an emotion in us. And often news will use fear and shock. And this is a very effective way to get us to click, to get us to share, to get us riled up, to get us interested in something. You know, not a lot of articles are written with the headline of, politician says something reasonable that most people agree with, like that just doesn't happen because the consumer, us, you know, we drive the market and when we click on things, it just, it perpetuates that. But the problem is, is that makes it so that 99% of what's clickable is purposely designed to make us feel afraid. And well, if clicking enough and reading enough of that stuff, you become demoralized. And so and you'll have a quite, I think, distorted view of reality. And so we all have to be knowledgeable about that and really, really be careful about what we click on and what we expose ourselves to and our emotional state as we're doing it. Right. And that's even talking about official corporate news, you know, which as far as I see is also geared towards click clickbait and you know getting more, generating more views but how does social media come into play like facebook or instagram or whatever when it's not even official news but it seems to be the most like it draws us even more than official news official journalism yeah well a lot of people research shows i think most people if i remember right at least a sizable percentage use facebook as their primary source of news which makes sense. Yeah, a lot of people just kind of browsing Facebook or Instagram 
and they don't necessarily go to the New York Times or something. They might not even have a subscription. The point is, is that uh, these social media platforms also are designed to engage us and th their algorithms have figured out machine learning AI that when we're afraid, we click. When we're emotional, we will stay engaged. And it doesn't matter if the information is accurate or helpful to us. It's just a computer figuring out what keeps us engaged. And so it requires all of us, you know, since there aren't good enough regulations and since Facebook isn't interested in not keeping us engaged, you know, we as consumers have to educate ourselves on how to monitor that. We have to push back. And it was the same when I was growing up, we were the TV generation and we had to learn how to protect ourselves from advertisements. There's a lot of talk to us as kids about how to figure out a TV, what a TV ad was doing to you and whether or not it was accurate or not. And I remember by a certain age being very skeptical of what was happening on television advertising. And I, I don't think that we have done that en enough education wise to the general public today regarding the internet and Facebook. Yeah, I was, I was listening to one of your podcasts about the social dilemma actually, where you're addressing that. But I thought it was interesting that you're also giving a counter argument that it's not necessarily apocalyptic as it's being shown to be. And for me, for me, the way I see it is, like you said, I would compare it to television and then video games when they when that came in and then uh, computers when everybody was, you know, plugged to their computer. So I feel now it's the same idea, but maybe amplify now because the phone is in your pocket, the computer is in your pocket. But um, I mean, what would you recommend as a therapist um, in terms of regulation? How, how could we bring in more ethics or regulation into social media or news? you know, for mental health as much as just for general accurate information? Well, it's a big ask and it'll never happen, but I think that Facebook and other organizations like that and news organizations should be moral when they, and ethical when they are reporting. There is some for sure, but I think that there needs to be more of that. In a capitalistic society, it is not likely to happen because to follow those ethics and morals, you are going to lose money. And that's just not the way things are set up. And so that would be nice. But in terms of regulations, I don't know. That's a real tough one because of course the government regulating what the press can and cannot say, or what a social media organization can and cannot do is has all sorts of problems with it that I don't think any of us want the federal government to have broad regulations around that. Of course, there are some regulations, um, but you know, there are some things. Twitter, for example, started to flag things that were factually dubious. Right. Yes. Um, so I think that they're starting to wake up a little bit. I don't think it's going to fix the problem. I think it, it, there needs to be government programs on either side of the, partisan divide that helps to educate people on how to view what they're being uh, shown. I think every politician would benefit. Well, 
That's a tough one, actually, to say. But I think we would benefit as a society if our politicians made that a priority, regardless of what the partisan message was. People on the right in the United States could be educated that, look, there's a lot of conspiracy theories running around on you know, uh, right conservative news groups. Here is how to differentiate between fact and fiction. Okay, on the left, there are ideas being pumped into your left mind about vaccines and, you know, various other things. And here's how to differentiate between fact and fiction. I can't imagine us as a society doing that. And so I think it's on us and maybe as a public education system to do what we can. But I, yeah, in the documentary, they talked about it, how it's basically going to be a apocalypse in the future, literally like society was, we were going to be like in a situation where the economies would completely collapse and everyone would be fending for themselves. And, you know, there'd be mass die-offs of human beings that are basically saying that. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Um, but I will say that if we're not careful in 20 years, we might see more in an increasingly problematic situation what we've been seeing in the political sphere today, which is politicians manipulating the masses with lies and propaganda and uh, all sorts of tried and true ways of manipulating people. But with Twitter, it just, you have this direct line with a bunch of people and you can depend on those people being in an echo chamber. And so I, there is some, worries that I have for sure. I just don't think we're going to be like a zombie apocalypse. Right. Yeah. But it's, it is a bit of a double-edged sword here, you know, because on the one hand, it provides information very rapidly, you know, that before was only fed to you by, you know, the corporate media. But at the same time, like you're, you're saying, it can create echo chambers, flat earth theory here or anti-vaccine there. So, um, but I've seen recently, especially with the elections, every time I'd be on Instagram, I would see anything dealing with the elections, you would have a little note that says, find out more information about that accurate information. So maybe there's progress, you know, step by step. Definitely in the right direction, for sure. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if it's changing any minds, though. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's very easy for people to just follow what reinforces their belief, you know? Yeah, the, I don't know. Uh, where else to go with this other than to say that I also think that, so I'm a progressive liberal and I, the, one of the things that we can do that I recommend that all of us do is stop ridiculing the right because when we ridicule them and humiliate them, it hurts their feelings. And when we get hurt, then we defend ourselves. We dig in, research shows this, and we attack back through, you know, tweeting, verbal, uh, circling the wagons, and even violence. And so if we're going to actually fix the system, we have to do our part about how we've created this. This isn't just something that the right created. We, we created this as a system. And a big part of the ongoing problem is our effective ways of ridiculing the other side, which is not the answer mm -hmm. so basically just reach out and stop vilifying yes. okay it takes a bit of courage i find but i agree yeah just a bit of compassion yeah and i find that i'll be ostracized by the left for doing it they'll say how dare you 
have empathy for those people? How dare you give them the benefit of the doubt? Don't you realize that they're the enemy? And it's, and then I have no one, you know, the, the left will reject me. The right already hates me and I'm all alone. And I've, you know, I've, I don't know, you know, if you get into these kinds of situations on YouTube, but I've been there many times. It's not, it's, and then I, I play it safe sometimes. I just, oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the safe place of just continuing with the status quo and allowing it to get worse and worse. I mean, what do you do? Uh, you know, I've always followed my my principle of compassion, and this is something I always always preach. Also, is to have the ability to um, listen to listen to somebody who argues who is on the opposite side of you. And maybe it's an instinct of mine, but I tend to be drawn to people who don't agree. So I'm comfortable with someone who doesn't agree. And I always try to look beyond the label. You know, who is this human? And they have a story for whatever perspective or opinion they hold. So I think the first thing is just to be an example. If some people will, let's say, hate me for it, I still feel comfortable in the fact that I know I'm doing the right thing because I know compassion is not an evil. I know compassion is not... Uh, you know, because we're social creatures, so we, we we bond with each other. So I don't see a benefit in creating a division. So if I see that, I'm going to try the opposite. Have a seat, sit down with me. Whatever you feel you want to say, even if it's intense or it goes against what I believe in, just go ahead and say it. You know, let's just break that wall and find the, you know, the common ground, which I think is maybe an instinct for diplomacy, but that's the first way to um, break that. And actually, language is, is one of those things. Language is one of the first ways to connect and break barriers. So this is part of what I do on, on this channel. Just have everybody connect with what is different, different culture, different language. Yeah, I loved your video. As a Japanese person, you talked about how uh, people from the Middle East, I've, I don't know if you're saying Arab people are similar to people in right. Japan. And I didn't know the uh, Arab culture, but I know the Japanese culture. And I thought, yep, you, you nailed it. Right. How do you know I, so much about Japanese culture? Um, well, ever since I was young, because I used, I used to practice karate. So that, that's what introduced me to a bit of Japanese culture. And I just fell in love with everything. It started with the samurai. And, and from there, um, I started learning the language. And for me, learning the language is more than just the words. It's really studying the culture. Yeah. So, I mean, I've never been though, but it's on my list. Um, and I had a friend also who was who was Japanese and introduced me even more uh, to the culture. Um, but uh, yeah, from there, I mean, it's as much as I know. But again, I look for the commonalities and I'll I'll laugh, let's say, at the differences, because it's not again, it's not something that should create this wall. It should be interesting. So finding you know like example the, the difference in time and measuring time or valuing time which is a huge contrast but family values are there so again just finding common grounds between people but uh yeah i have yet to visit though have, have you have you been yeah it's a very very interesting place uh, a lot of differences it's just it's yeah. there's some very Go with someone that lives there or has lived there for years because it's hard to see through the veil. It's it's helpful to have someone actually explain to you what's happening. I know that you're half, right? You're you're half Japanese and what is the other half? 
Um, it's a mixture of Swedish and UK. Okay. So how, were you born in Japan? No, uh, my great grandparents on my dad's side were born in Japan. And okay. um, on my white side, we go back to like pre-colonial United States okay. and Swedish people came over in the 1800s. Okay. Okay. Um, do you speak any of the, of the root languages? So no, neither does my, any of my parents, you know, okay. I'm fourth generation. So right. Okay. we've completely lost any connection really. Okay. Um, speaking of how has it been for you being mixed, you know, growing up mixed, I've, I've seen, I think I've seen one, I heard one of your podcasts where you, you kind of discussed a bit about, um, being a Hapa. Hapa. Right? Yeah. Could you explain exactly what a Hapa is? It's a word used to describe half Asian and it means various different things, but it's usually used to refer to half Asian people like myself. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things I could say. I didn't feel comfortable or accepted by either group, white people or Japanese people. Racism is everywhere. And I think that might've been something that I learned early was that every group has their own assumption about people and it's usually wrong. And learning that at the age of like seven is an interesting lesson to learn that for some privileged people, they might not ever learn, frankly. So that painted everything that I saw in the world. It made me skeptical of everything I heard and everything I saw when any uh, authority figure who were usually white people said anything to me. I remember looking at them like, well, you're a white person and you're wrong about Japanese people. What else are you wrong about? And I think that that was a blessing and a curse. Okay. Right. Did you grow up in a mostly, uh, uh, how can I say like non-mixed area? Yeah, I was almost like 99% white people. Yeah. Okay, so you were the culture, basically. <laughs> yeah, I was the exotic, okay. weird person. Yeah. Right. Lots of questions. Where are you from? Uh, Seattle? No, no, no. Where are you from? Where right. are you from? Yeah. Where are your parents from? Spokane? No, no, no. Where are they from? You know, it's just all the questions. Right. Where are your grandparents from? You know. <laughs> yeah. European. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get you. Okay. That's interesting. See, I grew up in, especially in elementary. I was surrounded by mixture. I was surrounded by culture. So I had no clue what racism was. I discovered that eventually. I was always curious about different cultures, different skin tones. I was like, okay. So I learned eventually that um, the key to defeating racism is at a young age being exposed, just exposure as opposed to just being shelled. So, and now I bring that to, to that channel, but that's interesting. Um, I remember you also said you, you, did you grow up in Hawaii also? Or you visited, I remember you said you, uh, or you connected more if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. When I visit Hawaii, it's the one place on the planet. I feel normal because okay. there are so many Hapa people there. Uh, it's the norm. I don't, I don't feel normal in Japan. I don't feel normal in the United States. Okay. So it's funny. Uh, I remember having a video talking about being a hybrid, which is almost it's its own culture in a way like mm -hmm. a third color, if you want, mm -hmm. which uh, I think down the line, as we move forward, we're going to, we're going to be exposed to more and more cultures and people will be mixed more. So mm -hmm. I feel that will be more and more the norm. Which, yeah. Thank God. Research shows, <laughs> yeah. Research shows that, that 
I am the future of the human race. Exactly. You're just you're ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let me move on to uh, a couple of other questions. Uh, let's see what we have here concerning uh, couple therapy, because I know you do that. So I have a question that asks, what makes living together challenging for couples? Any tips for working together under one roof? Basically, if in a harsher tone is uh, why do couples get so excited about living together? And when they do, they want to kill each other. Well, it's the same problem in any situation, whether you're living together or not, that we have a lot of needs emotionally, and those needs involve a need for closeness, a need to be respected, a need to be heard, a need for power, a need for uh, physical affection, depending on your situation. And when you live together, there's just a lot more opportunity to frustrate those needs. So living together, you might find that you feel like your partner, a common thing that I hear, your partner doesn't really give you a lot of attention. You know, you're both doing your own thing and you just get used to each other. You take each other for granted you might slowly drift away from each other and it just doesn't feel good. And then when your partner doesn't compliment you or reach out to you or respond well, when you bid for attention, then you get hurt and afraid. And then we usually try to compensate or cope with that through anger or distance. And then that triggers the other person, which causes them to feel hurt and afraid. And then they deal with that through anger or distance and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. So the key is, is to understand your own attachment needs and your own attachment reactivity and to communicate on that level. Instead of getting angry and distancing, you actually tell someone, I don't know what's happening right now, but I feel really distant from you and it, I'm, it hurts me and it makes me afraid. I, I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to blame me. I'm just telling you this is how I feel. Or to be specific, when you put the cups in the cupboard right side up instead of right side down, that hurts my feelings because I've asked you to do it this other way so many times and, and you haven't done it that way. And when I get hurt, I feel like you don't really care about me, which I'm pretty sure isn't true. I just wanted you to know that. How can we work this out? People don't usually you know, communicate that way because at the very first level, they're not even aware that they are hurt or afraid. They're usually only aware of their anger or they're so traumatized by their childhoods that they don't trust other people with their vulnerability. And so that level of communication is very difficult for some people. Okay. So there's different layers, but from what I understood, it seems to be very much about being honest with your feelings and how you communicate them instead of like, insulting the person saying what you feel like, okay, I feel angry because of this. And okay. So honest communication and understanding feelings. Okay. Makes sense. Um, okay. Let's see. Ah, here's a good one. Is there a stigma or shaming associated with therapy or seeing a therapist? Yeah. Research shows depending on the community, depending on the region of the world that there is a, notable stigma uh, and it prevents people from uh, seeking therapy or 
sticking with therapy, or even knowing what therapy is. A lot of people watch my channel and they'll email me and say, I had no idea that therapy could involve what you're talking about, that you could just talk about your emotions and your relationships and how to get along better and explore your own identity. Uh, I thought it was just because you were crazy, that kind of talk. And it literally causes people to die every day. There are so many people who are dying from stress-related physical problems or suicide because they are preventative from going to therapy because of stigma. Men are more likely to be stigmatized because men generally, depending on the culture, are taught to be independent and not be vulnerable. And a lot more men die from suicide than women. Okay. So, yeah, you just answered my question. I was going to say if, uh, if it's more common in men. is it Four most... times more common. Think about that. Okay. Well... Four times more common for if, if someone died, you know, from suicide, they're four times more likely to be a man than a woman. Because it's, they won't talk about their feelings because they won't. And talk about yeah. And well, there's a lot of factors. That's a big one. Um, another throughout their life, they, they haven't talked about their feelings because they're taught not to. Women are also taught that they're just taught that to a lesser extent in general. And men use more lethal means because they're just more violent. They're, you know, socialized to be more violent and thus will use more uh, horrific means. By the way, anyone out there listening or watching, if you do have suicidal thoughts and you're not being treated, make sure you get treatment. It is preventable. When Research shows when people get proper treatment and support, their suicidal thoughts go away. It's not inevitable. It, it is preventable. And so, you know, call, just, you know, Google the suicide hotline on, on suicide hotline. Um, 1-800-273-8255. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Very important. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I remember reading, um, it was from a meditation app. It talked about stats. I don't remember by heart, but it was something like three quarters of a Generation Z are say they're concerned about their mental health. So it seems like this generation, it's a lot more important for them than it used to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, younger people, because of our efforts to reduce stigma, are much more open to going to therapy for sure. It's a, it's a, it's a good trend. Right. Yeah, it's good. Okay, uh, let's go to some Patreon questions. Right. We have one here first from Khalil Mwasi. So he asks, um, what was the most memorable moment in your life as a psychologist, if you care to share? <laughs> uh, well, it's been 24 years, so most memorable moment. Can you narrow it down a little? Like what, what kind of moment? From what I understand, like he's asking also, have you ever gotten, for example, thank you notes from your patients? Anything that moved you? Oh, okay. I can talk about that. So a early client of mine that I worked very hard with and was difficult to work with, but also very professionally gratifying to see her heal over time. But because she had a lot of relational traumas, she had... Uh, transferred what we call a lot of her feelings from her parents onto me. And so I had to pass a lot of emotional tests that she threw out. 
and I was 28 at the time and, you know, just a young therapist and didn't really know what I was doing and learned a lot and really, really worked hard with her. And after years of working with her, she wrote me this, she would frequently write me letters and, and cards, but there was one card that really summarized how hard she worked in therapy and her uh, gratitude towards me. And I actually framed it. It's on my wall. So wow. <laughs> took out her name um, and I asked her permission if I could do that, but um, it's on, it's on my wall over there and I probably see it every day. Be being a therapist can sometimes be very isolating and uh, there can be a lack of noticing what you're doing. You know, there's not a lot, of, if you're a plumber, you have a leak, you fix the leak, you walk out of the house, you, you know, you did the job. Being a therapist, there's hardly anything like that. And there are times when all therapists will be demoralized and alone, feeling like they're a fraud and a failure. What's the point? You know, none of my clients are getting any better lately. What am I doing with my life? And having cards like that can really inspire us to continue. So if you have a good therapist out there, write them a nice card. That's pretty powerful. So it's very tough for a therapist, you know, oh, yeah. obviously. So I'm wondering, do therapists get therapy? Like do yeah. you have a therapist friend? Well, or just literally therapy. Um, most therapists will have their own therapist, um, also colleagues and supervisors. Obviously, we would be hypocritical if we didn't recognize everyone's need to have people helping them and to have support. Some therapists don't do that, and there are noticeable, you know, empirically observed consequences of that. So it's, a, it's an important element of, to be a therapist. It's a lot of stress, depending on the population working with, but that's it's a lot every job has a lot of stress honestly i find true, yeah. uh and if we didn't lead the way by going to therapy more often then you know that would be pretty hypocritical right great to know uh okay let's move on to our second patron what a day uh that's her name well her patron name so she asks racial and ethnic minorities access mental health services at a lower rate is there any Anything a mental health service provider can do at the individual level to raise up, no, to raise use of mental health services under to underrepresented groups? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not my area of expertise because I don't have that sort of job to try to reach out to communities. But things that I've uh, thought about, it's, I do do this at my university, uh, we will try because there's an underrepresentation of people of color who will seek out graduate school to become a therapist. And so we have to do what we can with that. But the things that people can do are to hire people of color, uh, to have a therapist who represents your people is much more welcoming and much more safe feeling to people. So making sure that you put efforts into that. Um, if you are a therapist who came from, or if you're a person who came from some of these communities, go to graduate school, become a therapist. Obviously, scholarships, 
uh, and other kinds of employment incentives. There's obviously public health things you can do, reaching out, uh, helping people become more aware, having translation services as well. Um, yeah, but you know, it's a tough thing. I, I, in the beginning of my career, when I did work for government contracts, they would send me into homes and there were people from all over the world. And it was, I found incredibly difficult to even explain to some people what therapy even was to explain that I am here for a variety of things, um, including just listening and listening can heal. Listening can help. That was a tough sell to a lot of people. They were, they'd say like, well, what are you going to give me? You know, if listening isn't going to help me at all. And of course there are some practical things that some people need and I didn't have those things and, and they were understandably bothered that I wasn't there to give them those things like literally just money to pay their electrical bill or something or translation services for the school that their kids were going to or something. But at the same time, it, you know, in Seattle, for example, we're indoctrinated into a society that understands at least to some extent that going to therapy and talking about your feelings will help you. That's not a notion that's known around the world. That's true. Yeah. It's like, however much progress we're making, there's still a dominant feeling that therapy is weird or it's, it's weak. You know, you're, you're broken if you go to therapy. But it's so interesting how listening, something so simple can have such a healing and powerful impact. Yeah. Just listening. Um, okay, that's good to know. Um, second question to ask, what do you do if a person of a particular culture views the source of a mental health condition differently? For example, anxiety is explained in terms of spiritual disturbance. She says it's probably problematic to say that a culture is wrong. Oh, yeah. We would never say that culture was wrong. What we need to understand is our Western or American conceptualization of mental illness is a cultural manifestation. It's not factual intelligent people that understand our diagnostic manual, the DSM, understand that that is an outgrowth of culture. It's not a description of reality. When it comes to medical things, not all the time, but we tend to think that as more of a hard science, right? You have a broken bone, you mm -hmm. do an x-ray, you see the bone, it's broken. There's no cultural misunderstanding of that. You know, you can't in one culture say like, well, in our culture, we just let that be, you know, no, no one says that it's like, there's a certain way to, to that is likely to result in positive outcomes, less pain, more mobility, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to mental health, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about dis disorders that are what we call constructs, meaning, you know, it's not a construct that you have a broken bone. You, you don't, we don't construct an idea of what that is. It's, it's a, it's a discrete thing that's happening. You could actually kind of debate even that. But my point is, is that in mental health, we construct things like anxiety. We, we construct the notion of anxiety. In another culture, they will construct, you know, it's all about observing other humans, hearing them talk, and then we construct a label of that. Well, in another, and it's changed over time in our culture. In another culture, they construct it differently. And we have to understand that. And 
that construction will be very important for us to understand when we're treating people. Because for some, it's not a matter of, like as an example, there are other cultures that anxiety is much more of a physical thing than we think of in the United States. We, we tend to, in the United States, not everyone, but generally speaking, we tend to think of anxiety as like a brain thing where we're, we're afraid. There's a stress and it's, it's in the brain. Other cultures will think of it more as a physical problem and not a mind problem. That their, their, their nervous system is, is something's wrong with their nerves. And both are right because both are observing people and applying a label. They're just emphasizing different parts of the whole. You know, you have blind people looking at a, you know, uh, um, an elephant. I can't remember that saying, but, you know, one person says an elephant is a tail. Another person says an elephant is an ear. Another person says an elephant is a, a trunk. Well, we're all looking at it from different perspectives and it's very important, but frankly, a little rare that therapists really get that. And I find it to be very helpful uh, to put things in perspective, even with, even when I'm treating someone from my culture, it's helpful for me to recognize, well, we're both still talking about a cultural description, not a a description of reality. So it helps then for a therapist to uh, at least understand or research the patient's culture, maybe? Yeah. and understand their, their side of the, the world? Yeah, not only research, which can be difficult, but to hear and really listen to someone, even in your own culture uh, or someone you perceive to be from your own culture. When you listen really carefully, you hear their worldview, the way they construct their world, and never assume that you understand what they mean by the language that they use. They might, their language could just be completely different in terms indicating a totally different worldview. So that takes time and effort. It also takes humility on your part as a therapist to recognize that your way is not the way, Mm -hmm. which frankly, not every therapist recognizes. Okay. Let's move on to a couple questions from YouTube. So we have here from dire straits Two. he asks, I'd like to know how cultural prejudices affect one's conduct and values. Uh, yeah, the rest is details. They're asking, for example, there's uh, fake stereotypes about Arabs who are seen as dangerous people, even though it's not true. Um, they're asking if a person has grown up inside of a society which leads to hate a specific cultural group, this person will automatically hate those people. Yeah, uh, we see that. It's. Uh, upsetting, but there are just constant examples of that around the world that your ideas are not your own. You've been indoctrinated in a variety of ways. And uh, to Americans, this is particularly difficult to understand because we like to think of ourselves as independent and, you know, we made, we make ourselves, but that is just not true. And it's not hard to see that's not true when you actually look around the world. And uh, the example that I try to give to try to explain this to people that are having a hard time, because it's a whole paradigm shift of thinking, wait, so all of my values and all my thoughts and all my ideas and all my heuristics and all my uh, initial reactions to people, uh, that's not really me. That's, that was pumped into my head. Like that's a hard thing to accept. And 
So what I try to uh, do is I say, well, do you remember learning your first language? You know, the, the language you learned when you were one year, two years old, do you remember learning that? And they'll be like, no. Uh, how did you learn that? Did someone sit you down with a chalkboard and actually teach you? No. How'd you learn? Well, I guess I listened to what people were saying. Okay, you learned words like the word for apple and orange, but how'd you learn syntax? How did you learn hand gestures? How did you learn face gestures? Well, I guess I just watched it and mimicked it. Well, that's just language. <laughs> Think about all the thoughts you have. Think about all the ideas you have about things. You also absorbed those. No one sat down with a chalkboard and said, black people are criminals and scary. No one said that to you, but you picked it up. You noticed, and those are in your bones now. And it's really hard to deprogram that in the same way that at the age of 35, you're not going to learn a new language in, with the same fluency as you did when you were one or two. Your brain just isn't that plastic. And so the ideas pumped into your head about different races and different genders and different people, they're kind of there to stay. And we've shown that through research, but we have to acknowledge that and you know, deal with it and try to deprogram the, it the best we can and account for it as best we can for justice reasons. And that begins with an understanding that our ideas are one, not our own, and two, not necessarily controllable. Okay, and from what you're saying, the older they are, the more difficult. So it looks like the hope is really in the younger generation. So it goes back to education, really. Yeah, I guess, for sure. I mean, I, I don't wanna characterize older people as incapable. <laughs> Right. I'm yeah. Saying that it starts at the age of one, two, three, and four. And so education can be good, but a lot of times the damage, a lot of the damage is already done. I mean, research shows that kids the age of like four already have prejudice about certain kinds of things, gender, race. So it really begins really early. <laughs> We're talking <laughs> one, two years old. They're already learning important lessons about groups of people. And that's a hard thing to do. I mean, what do you, how do you change that? And that's why things get passed down so assuredly is, so we're gonna have like a government program that takes kids away from their parents and reprograms them so we can end the chain of racism. That's just impossible. So it's a slow process and you know it's not gonna go away anytime soon. And this notion that somehow we can educate it away is just not, you know, We've been trying to educate racism and sexism away since I was a child in the 70s, and it's still here. So uh, we could do more. I, I'm not saying that it's not helping, but man, is it a hard nut to crack? Right. Yeah. Although I don't, I don't feel. Maybe I'm optimistic, but I don't feel it's impossible. I feel uh, like generations can grow and evolve so that maybe it wouldn't be completely eliminated but reduced at least in percentage totally yeah um okay all right uh let's see oh so here's a good one from salma taha she asks how to move forward when you've lost all motivation to achieve your ambitions i feel burnt i feel burnt out and require constant breaks but when i'm back to pursuing my goal I remain unfocused and scatterbrained. Yeah, so these are larger topics of self knowing who you are 
and also procrastination, which people often ask a lot about. There are many paths to being unfocused and procrastinating. I'll go into one of the common ones, but it's not the only one, is when we're growing up, there's an important phase of life, three, four, five years old, that we go through in an optimal family in which we develop a sense of who we are and what we want and what our needs are. And this might sound like something that everyone has, but not everyone has, and there's degrees to how much people have it. The question of what do I want now? You know, what do I want with my career? So let's just, you know, it's just a question like you're, you're 22 and you're like, okay, what, what kind of career do I want to have? Well, there's this notion in society that if you just kind of think about it enough, you'll figure it out. And that isn't true. What you need to have is a connection with your needs and your emotional center. And you need an ongoing sense of that because as you experience different activities, as you experience different ideas of the future, you need to have a connection with your feelings so that you can gauge, how do I feel about this? Is it going to meet my needs? Is this career actually in line with my needs? Is it against my needs? And that's a very, very complex thing. And so some people are not raised in a way that they were allowed to really develop that sense of their emotional center. Their emotions are down there, but they don't really notice them because they learned to cut themselves off from it because of the troubles they were going through. And so they grow up and they survive and they figure it out um, and they start to try on different careers and they can't, you know, they, they'll intellectually say, well, this is the career I want, but they're not, but it's not really in line with what they really want because they were never given an opportunity to figure that out. And they will find that when they try to motivate themselves to do something, they have a hard time motivating themselves or they become distracted really easily. And that's because that thing is just an intellectual idea about what they think they should want, but not actually what they want. This is only a certain section of procrastinators and career problem people. So I'm not saying this is everyone, but it's a sizable junk, chunk of them. Mm -hmm. The answer, unfortunately, is long-term therapy to figure out who you are and what you want. It takes a long time. Essentially, you're being reparented in a way that you should have been when you were two, three, four years old. The therapist is asking you, how do you feel? What do you want? In a safe place where you can actually explore that and get in contact with that. Then after you develop that, which could take years, you start interfacing with different careers. You start fantasizing about different futures and you're in contact with your feelings. And then you can actually evaluate because I don't know about you, but for me, when I do YouTube videos or the, my podcast, there's no ambivalence. I want to do it. <laughs> you know, I did this podcast for seven years and lost money by the way. So I must've been doing something I wanted. There was no reason to do it. No one was listening. No one was watching. Everyone always asked me like, why are you doing this? And I was just like, I don't know. I just can't not, I have to do this mm -hmm. because I was in connection with my feelings. I, it felt good to just get things off my chest. It's a personal satisfaction that I was in connection with. I felt it as I, as I did it. And then I knew, oh, I should be doing more of this, even though there's no reason to be doing it. I don't gain anything from it. It's not an intellectual mm -hmm you know, intellectually, I shouldn't be doing this. It's, it's a waste of my time, but I love doing it. I love talking with other people. I love exploring things. Mm -hmm. 
And you're benefiting too on top of that. Yeah. And, and I, but, and I'm in connection with that, you know, it's, it's right. really my core. It's not just an intellectual <laughs> idea. And so, um, so uh, for a lot of people out there that are struggling with career and motivation and procrastination, I encourage them to explore this idea of being in connection with your emotional core, uh, a connection with yourself, they'll sometimes call it. And if that's a chronic ongoing issue, then seeking a therapist that works to help you with not every therapist knows how to do that and getting in connection with that. Um, it can take a long time, but it's very worth it. Right. Um, I was going to say, I know that cultural expectations can stand in the way of that too. Let's say you, right. it's something you feel you want to do, but like we always uh, make fun of the fact that, well, at least uh, traditionally, Arab parents always want you to either be a doctor or you want to be a lawyer or things like that that are prestigious. Yeah. But Asian parents but, do. Right, exactly. So I was blessed enough, though, that since I was young, I've always wanted to do to be to be doing film entertainment, uh, you know, reaching out and connecting with people around the world. So, you know, having that support obviously feeds that. But and and, and for my in um, for me, I I'm the type that will also fight for that. So this, what I'm doing, is what I've always wanted to do. Uh, acting in movies, that's what I've always wanted to do. So, and it's something I'm willing to fight for, even if in the current situation, like you said, you might either be losing money or you're not a millionaire for it or whatever, but that's what you connect with. So I think it's important also to, like you said, connect, know your dream and follow that. Yeah. Yeah, so you must have been raised well enough to be in connection with that because you early in life knew that it felt good and you had a future in mind that also felt good to you. It wasn't being imposed on you from outside. It was even in opposition to what was being asked of you. And as you started to do it, you're like, yes, this does feel good to me. I, I don't need to, this doesn't feel like work. I don't feel like I have to, beat myself up to do task one through five, because I just love doing this sort of thing. Now, not every career can be that way, by the way, mm -hmm. you know, some careers are literally digging ditches. Someone's got to dig the ditches right. and not a lot of people wake up in the morning and go, I can't wait to dig dishes. So I'm not saying that your career is necessarily in line with your dreams, but okay. It is in line with the bigger picture of your life. You know, there's some reason why you're doing it. Maybe to do that, you it gives you a home, and that's very important, and a chance to hang out with your family. It gives you the ability to pursue your musical career because that isn't making money or whatever it is. So I'm not saying that your career is supposed to be like 100% like your dream in life, but to be in connection with the overall picture is a part of that connection with your emotional center okay right yeah that makes sense the person has a dozen of love relationships doing everything to make them happy and despite that the person despite that the person is always abandoned by them why does this pattern repeat the person even tried to change the tactic and method of its behavior in one of those relationships but the end was the same like with the previous one where is the problem uh so the person has a pattern of getting involved with people that abandon them. That's what I'm understanding here. Has a dozen of love relationships, tries to do everything to make him happy, but despite that is always abandoned by them. And why does this pattern repeat? 
Yeah. That's a tough one. Hard to know. There's a lot of different possibilities. One is bad luck. I mean, one of the things that I talk with a lot of people about when they're dating and they're quote unquote thinking they're failing at it, um, which is not usually a rational way of looking at it, is there's this expectation that, you know, the first person I swipe right on is the person I'm going to marry. And statistically, that is like almost impossibly true, uh, almost impossible to be true. So there's this expectation because, you know, in all the rom-coms, there's not someone that, you know, has to go on several sort of stops and starts with relationships before they find their Ashton Kutcher or something. You know, we, they tend to find them right away. Uh, it's not an interesting movie, apparently. And so people have this expectation. I mean, in some, for some people, they don't meet their, the one until they're 55 years old. And that's not a story we like to tell ourselves. You know, we like to tell ourselves, look, anyone can meet their one. If you just got to get out there and meet, you know, it's like, well, maybe, you know, but maybe not. And compatibility is a very tricky thing. It's very hard to uh, achieve that, you know, uh, as evidenced by most relationships, the vast majority of relationships end within the first year or two, right? maybe even within the first few weeks. So it takes a long time. And so to have like 12, have a dozen relationships where the other person didn't like you as much as you like them, you know, that's not, that's not weird. But if someone was having a pattern of that, some hypotheses that I might explore would be what kind of people are you attracted to such that they are likely to abandon you? Because there are certainly conditions personality wise where we grow up being abandoned by our family and then we will recreate that in our romantic life and we will subconsciously sniff out people who are likely to do that to us and then but we're not aware of that and we'll feel attracted and we might even convince ourselves this person's not going to abandon me but our subconscious knows no that person is likely to abandon and or you might even engineer it yourself subconsciously to get them to abandon you. I don't know if that's the case in this scenario, but that would be one hypothesis that I would explore. So from what you're saying, as a possibility, um, it's related to parental issues? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that... caregiver issues generally, you know, Care... okay. whoever was caregiving grandparents or whomever. And they, okay. when we go through abandonment early in life, one of the tragedies of development is often we will grow up to have either abandoning others or we will choose others or engineer relationships such that they abandon us. Okay. Um, it's something that just gets passed down through the generations. And without a lot of therapy, it's uh, hard to resist because of the subconscious okay. nature of it. It's like a self-destructive path. All right. A couple more questions. Um, this is something I'm not familiar with, but the questioner asks, please discuss the concept of community lethargy post lockdown. I'm not familiar with community lethargy. Maybe you have some, some insight. I don't know. Either. Uh, I could, I could speculate, <laughs> take a guess. We could speculate. <laughs> post lockdown. I, I, yeah. I would take a guess and say that, you know, because of lockdown, there will be a sense in a community that 
fatigue and lack of motivation. Uh, seems possible. That's what it's referring to. Everybody's and, sick of it. <laughs> yeah. And also just the boredom, right? You just, mm. I mean, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, for me, it's getting that way where every day is the same. Now, this is a nice welcome difference. I've never spot, spoken with you before. And, right. And uh, so, and these questions are interesting. So at least for this hour, I'm, I'm breaking from the norm, but so many of my days look the same, you know, wake up at the same time, do the same okay. thing, have the same routine, eat the same meal. And so uh, solutions to that are to find variety. I mean, this is just me giving tips. This isn't really a therapy thing because uh, I, I don't know the answer therapeutically, but I can say from my own personal life, and maybe you can share what, what you, I don't know if you have this sort of lethargy, but for me, I'm trying to find variety in where I can get it. <laughs> and so one of the things me and my wife are doing is having different kinds of meals. So that helps. Okay. Um, other things that we do is we will play this online uh, movie trivia game. Uh, actually, I'll give a shout out. Movie Cat, they're on Twitch. And every Wednesday at seven o'clock Pacific time. It's a local Seattle thing. It's really fun. And so we'll do that. We will go for walks in different neighborhoods <laughs> that we don't normally go walking in. Uh, acquiring more pets. You know, when you get a new puppy, there's a lot of, of course, <laughs> new energy in the house. Uh, so by the end of the lockdown, we'll probably have like 13 animals in this house. But um, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, but in Canada, I don't know where you're at you're in vancouver is and it? montreal actually oh, montreal yeah i mean for for me lockdown um honestly i'm i'm so busy i find whether having hobbies or i'm always editing too i always have and i have a creative mind so i'm always coming up with ideas so i find ways to keep myself busy and i've found meditation and mindfulness to be really helpful just mm -hmm. coming to the present not thinking too much about what's going to happen what happened or whatever um and just gratitude I have I look around and count my blessings <laughs> I think uh there are people who are, who are having you know things are a lot more intense I have family in Lebanon and I don't know if you're familiar but you know on August they they suffered through a massive uh, explosion in the port of Beirut so things like that remind me that uh, I have it pretty 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 good so yeah I <laughs> love that gratitude gratitude and start a YouTube channel exactly um I and I'm just I'm not even joking. I mean, YouTube channels can provide a lot of entertainment and a lot of, <laughs> you know, we're all stuck in our homes. Um, uh, as a side note, my cat is from Beirut, Lebanon. There's a organization called Animals Lebanon, which I'll give another shout out to that rescues awesome. cats and uh, sends them to homes in the United States. And when the explosion happened, it actually damaged their mm -hmm. facility and so I donated money because some of the animals had glass wounds. Yeah, that's horrible. Because the glass, like you know, blasted into the into the room with all the cats and the dogs, and yeah. so everyone out there, Animals Lebanon and other charities can help people that need it. Well appreciated. All right, I think we have to wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for coming. That was a wonderful conversation and change of uh, change of habit, like you said. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now back to my boring life. <laughs> um, is there anything you'd like to add? No, this is fun. And yeah. uh, like I said, love your channel, love videos, keep doing it. I appreciate, I know how much work goes into each one of those videos. Oh yeah. So I commend you on the quality and the delivery. There's a lot of care that I see going into those videos that uh, makes them what they are, which is great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, you guys can check out Psychology in Seattle with Dr. Kirk. And you have a co-host who, Umberto, I think. Umberto. Yes, perfect. So yes, you guys, if you really want to have access to, uh, I think you also have a, a Patreon uh, account with a lot more going on over there. So you guys can check that out. I'm going to put that in the links below. So there you go, my friends, Dr. Kirk Honda. Thank you so much for uh, coming to Mark Talk. Thank you guys for your awesome questions. We really had a great conversation there. You guys can check him out on Psychology in Seattle. Also, if you want the full extended version and more access to culture knowledge, more podcasts, follow me in, uh, on Patreon. It's also a great way to support the channel. Throw whatever other comments or questions you have below for another podcast. If you guys have ideas for podcasts, I'm also going to be doing a few of them solo. Just you guys and me. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And as usual, take care. This is a rising picture. Duh.